Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Tech UK podcast. I'm Dan Pertfield, Head of Cyber and National Security here at Tech UK, and I'm joined by Sam Wyatt, Programme Manager for Cyber and Defence. We'll be our host for this podcast exploring how COVID-19 is impacting the UK cybersecurity sector. We'll start by focusing on the biggest challenges posed by COVID-19 and the trends we've seen over the last few months, with Rebecca Lucas and Snea Dorda joining us from the Royal United Services Institute. Then, following on from government's significant easing of lockdown measures, we too will be looking to the future at a number of issues which can help the UK cyber sector put its best foot forward for what we hope will be a speedy recovery. These will include the campaign to reform the Computer Misuse Act, CyberUp, the creation of the UK Cyber Security Council, and recently relaunched Cyber Exchange. But first, let's look at the current state of play. Over to you, Sam. COVID-19 has drastically changed the cyber landscape due to a large portion of the population working from home. Not only this, but the virus has presented an opportunity for scams to play on people's concern for their health, claiming to be calling as a test and trade server or fraudulently charging people for access to COVID-19 test kits. This section of the podcast will explore this new landscape and give listeners things to focus on as we enter the post-COVID era. I'm delighted to be joined by Rebecca Lucas and Snea Dowda of the Royal United Services Institute to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on cybersecurity specifically and the technology industry more generally. So thank you both for joining me. The first question I have really is, how would you say that COVID-19 has affected cybersecurity? I know that's quite broad. If you could give me a, your perspective on that, that would be great. Sure. So thank you for, for having us um, on, on the podcast. Um, it's uh, a great opportunity to, to talk to a new audience. Um, I think one of the biggest changes that we've seen as a result of COVID, in, in which you alluded to, Sam, was the, this expanded threat landscape um, with everyone moving to remote working. It um, has just expanded the number of opportunities, uh, of vulnerabilities um, in the systems that we rely on. Um, and then uh, correspondingly, the opportunities for um, potentially malicious threat actors. Um, and some of that has been compounded by the speed at which that shift had to happen, which meant that people were willing to make compromises um, that they might not otherwise make in terms of uh, you know security versus efficiency. So one example of this that a lot of companies have been struggling with is video conferencing platforms. You know, there's been a lot of discussion around Zoom and the security of Zoom, um, and the you know the company has actively tried to address many of these concerns. Um, but even companies, I think, who otherwise might have hesitated to use Zoom um, or you know any kind of of these these uh, uh, VTC platforms um, have were willing to take risks that they might not otherwise have taken because they needed to keep operations going, um, and you know there wasn't a lot of notice. So um, I think that's that's certainly a big piece. I think moving forward, um, as you know, we countries start to come out of lockdown, um, we're going to increasingly see. Um, downward pressure on cyber investment as well, um, given the, you know, the economic forecasts that we're seeing um, as a result of COVID. And that, particularly because cybersecurity for many companies is enabling function, it's not a revenue generator, um, that downward pressure creates, could potentially create some real problems um, in terms of, of cybersecurity vulnerabilities. So that's a space that you know, we're all gonna, I think, need to keep an eye on moving forward. If I just jump in there, thank you first for for having us um, on the podcast. It's really exciting uh, that we can actually be on a podcast, to be honest with you. Um, uh, it's a new experience for me, and I'm not sure for Becca, but um, it might be a new experience for her. Um, just in response to uh, Becca's comments as well, they're, they're all completely valid, and, and especially the comment around cyber investment being, uh, you know, with cybersecurity being an enabler rather than a profit generator. Um, this also ties into the fact that business processes in the back office before coronavirus were continuously being updated and there was a lot of automation uh, and talk about automation at least going on and um with the with the shift to remote working um a lot of uh, companies and services have had to digitalize their platforms massively 
Um, so banks, you know, were on this digitalization journey, have now had to start rethinking about what services they offer online and how they do that remotely. Um, and increasingly, that's, you know, that is a severe tension with the, uh, you know, customer services and and what customers expect from the services they receive. So not only is there increasing uh, remote working, but there's also this, you know, I guess, race to digitalize any services that they were providing in person. And that creates a few vulnerabilities, right? So if you're automating the back office, not only uh, is that the additional kind of economic pressure um, in developing the systems. Um, so that's a really expensive job, essentially. Um, but it also brings into question what infrastructure these businesses are actually building. You know, what secure development processes are they using within within the architecture of the infrastructure? And, you know, there are, there are further ethical implications around what they're automating and, and whether or not it's appropriate. So there are some there are vulnerabilities there that that attackers can really exploit uh there are certain you know if if an attacker really decides that they want to disrupt a company or a specific company um it's not actually that difficult and there was some recent news around banking in particular um there was some research done by positive technologies and they tested 14 banking uh, mobile banking applications um and over half of those um, apps were actually vulnerable to fraud and theft of theft of funds. So there's a lot of, um, you know, not only are the businesses actually vulnerable, but the users are as a result also vulnerable. So there's a lot of tension there. And I think we're going to see cyber investment come to loggerheads with that digitalization process because none of this is cheap. All of it is expensive. Um, so it'll be, it'll be an interesting ride, I think, for many businesses moving forward. I guess that leads me on to my next question, which uh, which is, are there any changes in the sorts of threats and the sorts of vulnerabilities that hackers or bad actors are trying to exploit? Or has that mainly stayed the same? So there's a little bit of contention around this. Um, so if you look at the NCSC resources from, from about April, um, May, um, they they published some research that basically said that even though we're seeing a lot of coronavirus-related scams coming out, um, there are there isn't hasn't been a rise in the number of cyber criminals operating. So even though there's more coronavirus-related stuff, there aren't more criminals out there doing it. Um, which is an interesting kind of view of the threat landscape. We all know that ransomware is the number one threat. Um, to businesses and to people at the moment. And that, that hasn't changed under coronavirus. I think, um, if anything, ransomware is even more lucrative at the moment because it, it preys on very scared and vulnerable people as a result of, of the crisis ongoing. Um, so that's kind of my take on on the uh, the landscape that, um, you know, things have largely stayed the same but have become very coronavirus subject specific. I think coronavirus has also made healthcare targets um, much more attractive, not just for uh, exfiltration of information, you know, patient data and all of that, but also um, interrupting operations. And as, as Snea mentioned, ransomware is, is a fairly key concern there um, as, you know, hospitals in particular, but also, you know, companies developing vaccines. We've seen a number of, of attempted cyber attacks there. Um, some of these are on, on behalf of criminal groups, but others are, uh, there's information to indicate that, you know, some of them are nation state actors, um, just kind of because of the, I think the stakes um, are around, you know, vaccine discovery and everything are, are quite high. Um, and the geopolitical tensions that we've kind of seen rising around, um, you know, between the US and China and some of the aggressive moves that President Trump has made um, to acquire uh, vaccine, you know, companies that, are, that might be developing a vaccine um, have certainly made that um, heightened tensions in that in that area. Um, and unfortunately, the healthcare sector um, has never been great at investing in cybersecurity. And um, while that is, you know, has been a longstanding problem, I think it is in increasingly a problem um, in the midst of this pandemic. Um, since because, you know, health infrastructure is, is 
so important um, for for addressing the pandemic. Um, so I think we're, you know, we could see increased government investment there, but um, we're certainly, I think, seeing that as a, a whole, uh, as, as a category of, of targets that have become increasingly attractive um, to, again, criminal groups and nation state actors. So how do you think that COVID-19 has affected cyber in the UK and, and our technological drive? So um, in the UK, uh, you know, there have been a few attempts at a contact tracing app that have floated around and constantly, you know, popped up in the news every few weeks. Um, and it's actually been a pivotal part of many countries' strategies to have one of those apps um, with, you know, Singapore, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, these are just some of the countries who've led the way in the technological approach to managing um, to managing coronavirus and, and testing and tracing uh, contacts through that. The UK has seen some pretty um, big arguments around around the contact tracing app with a lot of privacy lobbyists, you know, uh, sparking conversations around what the data requirements are around the app and what are the data protection principles that that will be used these are really vital questions and and it's really important that someone asks them because if no one asks them then we sleepwalk ourselves into situations that that um, everyone then regrets in a few years time so that that's largely where the UK has uh, the UK conversation has has been for the, the UK version of the contact tracing app. There have been questions around the cybersecurity of these apps. Um, when they trialed it in the Isle of Wight, I'm pretty sure it was the Isle of Wight, um, it was very, uh, scammers were very quick to create a, um, a spoof app. And this tells us, I think, one big thing is that are we creating these apps with security in mind and with user security in mind so is the are we even educating the user of this app that um that you know there are only there's only one legitimate source of of contact tracing um and this app is the only one that exists and then also are we educating them that you know certain things that the app may enable or disable there are you know security considerations to take into account there and to ensure that you're protecting yourself further so is that for me that educational element is really important because a user needs to know what they're signing up for and very often users don't know what they're signing up for so it's really vital that we we get that right and i think it's right not to release an app before we're very sure that we've gotten all of these considerations right and that you know the that um, data protection is taken into account, that the security of the user is taken into account, and um, and how those that data is stored is also taken into account, because very often, uh, very often that's underlooked. So um, that's kind of my two cents on on that. I think it's important to again come back to this tension that I alluded to earlier in terms of rolling out uh, remote working capabilities. You know, this constant tension between security and efficiency and, and functionality. Um, you know, we've all been in situations um, where there were things that we wanted to use for work um, that you know, didn't work, weren't allowed on our work laptops um, for security reasons, and, and kind of thinking about how do we make those trade offs. And um, just as for remote working, there was um, an increased kind of pressure to get stuff ruled out um, and accept some security risks that might not otherwise have been palatable. Um, we're I think we see something similar with, with contract tracing apps where there is such pressure to get these apps out um, and you know use them to, to address um, the pandemic. And I think it's important to to do two things first, as, as Sne alluded to, make sure that these apps are really secure um, and that we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's um, before they're they're rolled out, even though that might mean a bit more of a delay. Um, but also to think about, you know, how the amount of information that we're comfortable with, with governments collecting. Um, and, you know, I think in times of like a pandemic, um, people are less concerned about privacy um, than they might otherwise be because there is this much greater concern. And I think it's important that um, we think about powers that might be appropriate for the government to have in a, you know, to address this kind of unique and 
um, this unique threat um, that that COVID has has presented. Um, those powers might not be powers we want the government to have access to um, in the long term. So, um, you know, some of the the contact tracing um, data permissions that um, that governments have had, some of them are implementing, you know, sunset clauses where those powers have to be renewed. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, where exactly in government should the uh, responsibility for this app, these apps rest, um, who should have access to the data. So all of those questions are important as well. I guess, I guess uh, I'd just like to ask what the research priorities at RUSI are at the moment. Uh, has COVID-19 taking hold of the agenda or are things ticking along as normal? It would be great to hear what you guys are up to. So certainly uh, COVID has um, complicated research agendas a bit, um, just in terms of, you know, trying to respond to uh, all of the concerns around, you know, what we're talking about today um, in terms of the cybersecurity implications of, of COVID. Um, but a lot of our research priorities have uh, essentially stayed unchanged, you know, the, um, we have one project, the Globalization of Technology project, that looks at um, the increasing dominance of non-Western countries in technology production and manufacturing um, and kind of the, the security implications of that and how different governments are responding. Um, and those, those pressures, those tensions have been exacerbated by COVID, but it's, it's that the problems remain essentially the same. So um, we're looking at, you know, critical national infrastructure and cybersecurity there, um, which, you know, again, was a problem before COVID and, and will remain a problem for um, regardless of kind of how things unfold with with coronavirus. Um, you know, SNEA has been, um, she can speak to it more, but has been working on doing work on national cybersecurity strategies, which, again, um, something that, you know, was important before COVID and, and will remain important. Um, so, Sneha, I don't know if you want to speak to some of the work you're doing on that. Yeah, yeah sure. So, um, my my main research revolves around the future UK cybersecurity strategy, which um, is meant to be released in 2021 because this strategy is from 2016 to 2021. And it was a pretty transformational strategy. It it pushed a lot of the, um, what I like to call the prosperity agenda, which means that cybersecurity is an enabler of prosperity because it makes the internet a safer place to do business and live and do whatever you want online, um, which, which is probably a line to take and straight out of the strategy itself. So, um, so the strategy was, you know, really pivotal part of, of uh, you know, the UK building its cybersecurity approach really coherently and cohesively, making sure that all the dots within government were aligned um, in order to create a huge impact. Um, coronavirus actually has changed a lot of the research agenda in my, uh, in, in the kind of strategy field because... When I was doing all of my kind of research last year, all the interviews um, and workshops, this, you know, that was a different world, basically, that we were living in. It There was no pandemic there or strain on resources to the extent to which coronavirus is having at the moment. So what does this throw into question for the strategy? Well, as Becca said, the increased threat landscape, which will require a huge amount of money to fix, uh, if not to work on, um, but also the priorities of the strategy, what we envisage them to be, have to change slightly in light of that constrained financial environment. So the government has to then ask itself, well, you know, what can private sector pick up that we've been doing that they can help with uh, in order to ensure that the end goal of UK cyber resiliency is still met. So that's where coronavirus really throws questions up. It's, you know, what what does this mean for society? Um, what act, stakeholders and actors within society can take on more responsibility or slightly shift their roles to become more effective? And then also, how can we as a government ensure that all of these aims are met within society. So how do we make sure that, you know, average Joe in the street is actually securing themselves when they're using the internet um, or, or following basic security principles? How can we make sure that they understand that and know that and implement those things? Um, and what can we do to help them on that journey that isn't a massive financial burden? Um, because 
I think the key thing coming out of uh, the coronavirus pandemic will be this financial strain on every single country. This is definitely not exclusive to the UK, and and I think a lot of countries will feel that. So that's where it shifted my research agenda quite a lot in the sense that the project itself has had to kind of encapsulate a whole other lens um, and a whole other strain uh, on the country. Um, I'm also doing a project on on cyber fraud, um, which is really interesting in light of what's going on at the moment. Um, it actually ties in really nicely because we designed the project before the pandemic, but because of the enhanced remote working that Becca mentioned and all of those services that that companies are going to be giving uh, giving customers, it actually speaks very well to the, this threat landscape, it's even more of an uh, important problem as a result. So it almost, you know, validates what we were working on uh, originally, which is which is exciting. Um, but within that, um, within that project, we're also looking at things like policy challenges, such as the Computer Misuse Act, and whether or not, you know, that needs updating, or what legislative levers can the government use in order to implement, you know, better um, better processes around tackling cyber-enabled fraud and how does law enforcement, you know, organise and respond to the the challenge of tackling cyber-enabled fraud? So that's an exciting project. I think um, uh, that you know uh, we'll be releasing a paper very soon um, in the next month before the parliamentary summer recess, and we'll have a final paper out in the winter. So um, people should definitely keep their eyes peeled for that. That's great. Thanks. Um, one final question. Moving slightly away from cyber to COVID more broadly, how has it affected supply chains across the digital economy? Um, I, I know, Rebecca, you said that you were doing some some work on that when we were chatting before the podcast. So it'd be great to get some thoughts on that. Sure. So I think, um, again, in, in, this, in the vein that I was talking about earlier of problems that uh, predated COVID but have been exacerbated by the pandemic, um, we're seeing a lot of countries quite concerned about supply chains for um, particularly for for key areas of national infrastructure. So energy, um, telecommunications, there's been all this discussion about 5G um, uh, and 5G network components, um, defense supply chains uh, for you know military equipment. And I, the disruptions that have happened as a result of COVID and the growing geopolitical tensions between the US and China have made that conversation even more urgent um, and even more um, uh, necessary. Um, so I think, you know, we're hearing a lot of rhetoric from countries that, uh, certain countries in particular, that, you know, about bringing supply chains home, um, you know, domestically and to ensure that supply chains can be resilient. But, um, you know, whether how that is going to play out in the long run is, is going to be interesting to see um, because most countries, frankly, just can't. Um, don't they, you know, they don't have the capacity to to manufacture what they need at home. Um, and even if they do, it might not be the most economically um, viable um, or pragmatic uh, course of action. So um, it will be interesting to see kind of what, what happens there. Um, you know, countries just trying to ensure that you know, their supply chains um, can, uh, you know, that they can con continue to get the components um, and the supplies that they need for these critical systems and that the components are, um, you know, quote unquote, trustworthy, you know, that they're not going to um, contain vulnerabilities either that are either the result of accident or of um, malicious behavior that could potentially compromise, um, you know, these key areas of, of infrastructure. Um, so I think we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, discussion in that space moving forward. We've already seen a number of countries um, talking, for example, about, you know, foreign investment regulations and, and how they're going to um, how those may need to change going forward. Um, so, again, the, definitely a space that, that we'll all want to keep an eye on um, in the coming months. What are the best ways to keep in, engaged with what Rusia are up to? Um, so we have a mailing list that we send out um, news about any upcoming publications, such as the one that, that Snea alluded to on cyber fraud um, or any upcoming events that we might have. If you go to the Rusi Cyber Team webpage, uh, there's an option to sign up for that mailing list. So that's probably the best way to, to keep an eye on, on what we're doing. Wonderful. Thank you both. 
delighted to be joined by Kat Summer, Head of Public Affairs at NCC Group, one of the organisations behind the CyberUp campaign. CyberUp is calling for reform of the UK's cybercrime laws, in particular the Computer Misuse Act 1990. So welcome, Kat. Perhaps you could start with a quick overview of how the campaign came about and, and its key aims for, for 2020. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Delighted to be here and thanks for giving me the opportunity to just present uh, the CyberF campaign. It came about orchestrated by NCC Group because we um, and our security and threat intelligence researchers were increasingly hampered um, by the uh, activities that they were able to undertake um, for the purpose of identifying criminals, um, detecting cybercrime that had taken place, um, and looking um, and thereby being able to warn future uh, victims. Um, we saw that as, as an issue that affected us. We went around the industry um, and other interested stakeholders um, and found out that you know, we weren't the only people who saw issues with the Computer Misuse Act um, and the only company um, based in the UK whose operations were uh, significantly hampered by the way the law was written um, 30 years ago. Um, so in an attempt to consolidate and um, put momentum behind that campaign and the calls for change. Um, we brought all those bodies that uh, had an interest in reform together under the banner of the cyber app campaign. Um, not least also make it very, very clear that it's more than just a single organization who is affected by that um, and who is calling for change. Great. And, and, you know, from a, a completely logical point of view, to me, it seems that a piece of 30 year old legislation should be updated. It, it was implemented before I was born. The first version of Microsoft Office didn't come out until after it achieved royal assent. And, and since then, we've obviously seen an explosion in computing with ubiquitous connectivity, computer and mobile phone use, now an integral part of, of everyday life. But perhaps from a, a more practical point of view, could you give us an idea of the day-to-day -day challenges this now poses to the cyber industry, and in particular, those working around threat intelligence? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's a very good point to say that the technology nowadays that you know we use on a daily basis didn't exist 30 years ago. The other element is that the, the cyber defensive industry as we know it today didn't exist or was in its very, very early stages um, but at the time that the, the act was written. Um, and a lot of the work that um, cybersecurity professionals do on the face of it doesn't look different from what illegal or criminal hackers do, which is one of the main challenges in the act. The, on a normal day, the main difference between uh, a criminal hacker and an ethical penetration test or an ethical cybersecurity consultant is that normally when we undertake testing of systems, we have an authorization form, which means we have the permission and the consent of the system owner to probe and hack and um, you know, look for vulnerabilities um, and look for malicious items on those systems. The challenge in threat intelligence um, is that more often than not, um, it is incredibly difficult to obtain that permission either because uh, the owners of the systems that have been compromised by criminal or state actors um, are somewhere around the world where it's hard to even find contact details for them um, and quite frankly often organizations approached by security researchers um, on issues aren't particularly forthcoming with information or willing to help so obtaining that consent is really difficult um, the other element is that the investigation of criminal systems, so criminal actors infrastructure would under the Computer Misuse Act also require permission. Um, and I keep saying to people, it's, it's similar or it would be akin to calling up a criminal to say, I'm really sorry, I'm about to want to catch you. Please, can you sign this form to allow me to do that legally? Um, so the, the challenges um, we find is that things like uh, internet scans um, or uh, investigation of uh, file structures that are open to the internet are de facto illegal under the Computer Misuse Act. 
Um, and that just makes it incredibly difficult um, for those quite valuable for intelligence activities to be um, undertaken. Um, the, the other practical challenge, which is quite an interesting thought experiment to an extent, is that um, on the face of it, the practice of port scanning, so things that uh, internet search engines like Shodan and Census are based in the US do, is illegal under the Computer Misuse Act, or at least in a very ambiguous gray area. So whether it's legal or not will depend on which lawyer has the better arguments, ultimately. Um, and there is an argument that even things like search engines or anything that's scraping websites for information is de facto in breach of the Computer Misuse Act. And, and I think that, you know, over the COVID-19 period, have, have we seen these challenges kind of come to the fore and have we seen these perhaps darker than, than they might usually be? Yes. Yeah, I think I think we have. Um, and that's particularly true for the the partnership in which private operators and law enforcement and public authorities um, like the NCSC work uh, in order to detect cyber criminal campaigns um, and then stop them in their tracks. Because um, the, you know, the, the criminals, um, as we know, uh, and hostile state actors have been targeting critical national infrastructure throughout the COVID-19 period. Um, our ability to track that activity, um, identify where it's coming from, identify where it's going next, so that we can warn and um, uh, and update systems to prevent harm from happening is incredibly important. And we'd quite like that legal environment to allow us to do that to maximum effect um, and allow us to, you know, bring the technical capabilities that we have to keep the nation safe and secure to the fore. And, and this campaign's not just NCC Group, as you've already mentioned, as well as Tech UK, there's other organisations that are involved? Yeah, so we've got um, a whole range of cyber industry supporters, um, including companies like F-Secure, like Digital Shadows, um, like Netitude, so sort of household names within the UK cybersecurity industry. We have the support of academics and legal experts, and we are hearing very positive feedback from the broader business communities, so ultimately the, the end user organizations of threat intelligence. So manufacturing bodies, aviation bodies, financial services bodies, all those associations representing companies that ultimately benefit from receiving high quality threat intelligence and findings. Great. And I, I know that there's been, obviously, the, the COVID-19 disruptions meant that, that timelines are always changing. But could you give us a sense of, you know, what good would look like? Where, where, where are we in the current process and how's engagement with policymakers and parliamentarians been going so far? I mean, ideally, what we'd like to see is an amended Computer Misuse Act. Amendments in the way that allow for an actor's motivation to be taken into account so that those acting in good faith are acknowledged or recognised as having a legitimate or defensible reason for doing certain things. There's various ways of, of doing that legally. Um, you could amend the definition of what authorised or unauthorised access to a computer looks like, for example, and you could include statutory defences so that those acting on the grounds or, or for the um, prevention and detection of crime have a defence for why they are on the face of it uh, breaking the Computer Misuse Act. The challenge I think we've had is that a lot of the um, parliamentarians and civil servants um, that we've spoken to agree on the principle of it. They agree that the Act is outdated. They agree that the Act needs reform. Fitting it into the parliamentary timetable and into the priority list of what is a very busy department uh, in terms of the Home Office is a challenge. And finding a legal 
language or a precise legal language that achieves greater permissibility for the good guys, as it were, while not creating loopholes for the bad guys, I think is, is a real challenge. And, you know, we're, we're going back and forth and we're trying to work that out. Um, but I think the main challenge at the moment is the lack of urgency or the lack of prioritization um, given to uh, reforming the Computer Misuse Act within the relevant political circles. Absolutely. And, and amidst the backdrop of global Britain and, and Brexit and things like that, this is, I suppose, really about helping the cybersecurity industry put its, its best foot forward in terms of making sure that companies can do what they're able to do to protect UK businesses and, and citizens alike. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and there, there is a, a twofold argument um, in a way. There is the keeping the nation safe and secure in cyberspace element and allowing, you know, the homegrown UK cyber companies to do that to best effect. But there is also the element that um, obviously the cyber security market is a global market and there are providers operating all over the world and there are countries with regimes that seem a lot more permissible. The US, for example, uh, the Netherlands, France, all are moving to a point where cybersecurity providers based there are able to undertake activities that we love to undertake here but are legally unable to, which means that the quality of product or the quality of service that UK providers are able to offer is, you know, by default lower, which means we are at an internationally competitive disadvantage, which if we take the point that the UK cybersecurity sector is world leading and there is global demand for it, we should be able to offer the, the highest quality products and services. Absolutely. And I know that as we look forward to the next iteration of the, the national cybersecurity strategy, that, that these questions will, will be raised with DCMS and, and others. How can listeners support the campaign and, and perhaps get a little bit more involved? That's a very simple thing to do. One is go onto Twitter, find the at CyberUp campaign handle and follow it. Um, and the other is go straight to the cyberappcampaign.com website and you have the opportunity to sign up for updates and news or to become a formal supporter listed on the website or you know just get in touch by the website if you need more information. Thanks, Kat, and thanks for taking the time out to join us today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Now we're going to look more closely at skills and professionalising the cybersecurity sector. In September last year, government awarded funding to a consortium of cybersecurity professional bodies and organisations like Tech UK to establish the UK Cybersecurity Council. This organisation's objectives will centre around professionalising the sector, creating clearer career pathways, with the ultimate goal of offering chartered status to cyber professionals. I'm now joined by Budgie Dander, co-chair of the UK Cybersecurity Council Formation Project. Budgie, perhaps you, you want to start by giving us a little background on, on the council itself and, and how it's progressing. Yeah, uh, so I think there's been a lot of thought gone into this uh, establishment of a council for many years now. Uh, it's certainly I've been involved probably about I think for two or three years ago when the initial discussion started around this and it really started to coalesce around a consultation document that DCMS put out around 2018 which drew out four key areas that they thought that the council should really focus on. And one was around professional development as you've already mentioned but the others were around ethics, thought leadership and then influence, outreach and diversity and it was all about trying to get more people into the profession giving them clearer pathways through the profession, understanding the landscape around qualifications, certifications and education and career paths and what it means in terms of actual delivery. If you look across the landscape at the moment, it, there's a myriad of qualifications out there and no one really knows how they all fit together. So that's where it all came together. So obviously the, the formation project was set up last year. I came on about January time of this year. And if you look at the organisations that are involved in it, it covers the spectrum of organisations that are already delivering value in this space. So we have a number of professional organisations and membership organisations. So Tech UK is obviously part of the body that's delivering this called the Cybersecurity Alliance. Uh, and that's a consortium that's headed up by the IET. And it has a number of other learned bodies in there, many bodies which people will be familiar with if you're involved in cybersecurity. So organisations like Crest, 
the BCS, the Chartered Institute for Information Security. I don't want to name them all, but I don't want to miss anybody out as well. So I won't, I'll leave it at that. Uh, in terms of where the project's got to, there have been a number of work streams that have been established and they're all slowly progressing through where they've got to get to. The council itself won't actually be established until March 2021. So we've got a little bit of time yet, but there's some good progress on that. And I think the messaging of what the council's trying to do and the engagement process outside of that core group and the authority side, which includes the DCMS and NCSC, uh, I think that meshing is now starting to get out wider. People are starting to become more aware of what we're doing. Uh, so that's where we are at the moment, uh, but there's an awful lot still to do. So uh, watch this space, I think. Thanks, Bojian. Uh, you know, amidst the, the various work streams and, and long-term objectives, I suppose the, the key question is, for the sector and for the profession, what do you see as the main benefit of having the council when it when it's formed and, and what will good, good look like a couple of years from now? Uh, I think there are a number of facets to that question. Uh, so what does good look like? So if you look currently at a job vacancy, for example, you wonder whether the people that put the job description together actually understand how cybersecurity works. Because quite often they'll just say, must have CISP, must have CISM, or one of the, those other qualifications out there. And there's no real thought given to whether that's the right qualification for the job that the person is going to be going to do. So actually a un better understanding of what's required to do one of those roles would be a good starting point. So bring some coherence to that is a good, great starting point. And there's one of the work streams looking specifically at how the qualifications and certifications fit together, the equivalence between them and what they actually cover. And this links back to another project, which the government has been funding for a few years now around cyber, the common body of knowledge around cybersecurity, which actually provides the fundamental knowledge blocks required for any particular role that you're doing. So bringing all that together I think will really help the profession and it will help people trying to get into the profession because they'll understand what skills and knowledge they actually need to do a particular job. And that links to another work stream, which is actually trying to map out the career pathway for people. So where do you come in at a foundation level? How do you decide which direction you want to go in and how do you get to that particular point? So if you want to be a pen tester, I suppose that path has always been clear. But if you want to become a CISO or an auditor or you know, many other routes, or if you want to change from one to another, what skills have you got which are transferable? So I think that's a great part of what we're going to be doing. And I think that will really help anybody that's in the industry, whether you're a professional in there or whether you're recruiting professionals or developing professionals. Uh, I think the other big thing which we will start to see is more people coming into the cyber profession as people start to understand what it is, because you know, it's still a relatively new profession but also through the work that we're doing around the thought leadership, but the influence and outreach, and particularly focusing on diversity, I think that will be a great thing to, to see in the profession. Uh, we know that you know, there is, and much like many other professions, there's underrepresentation from many uh, sectors, for whether it be BAME or women or neurodiversity. But if you look at this particular sector, if you look at what's happening from the attack side, those people think differently. So we've got to have people that think differently working on the protect side. So I think we will start to see that. You will see some more people starting to come into the profession. And that's what good looks like to me. Absolutely. And I think offering that clarity around career pathways will, you know, eventually really benefit industry in terms of the people that we can bring into the sector. And like you said, the diversity of thought that we can bring in as well. One thing that's always key for industry is developing good ethical practice. Is the council going to have a role, role in that? It certainly is, and it's one of the products which is probably the most evolved of what we've been working on for the last uh, few months, and that's one which will be coming out to wider consultation fairly soon. If you look at the organisations that are already involved in cybersecurity, I mean, ethics features very, very strongly. So if you look at what Crest do, for example, their members have to behave in a very ethical way. Uh, so a number of the bodies have come together and they've drafted a, a code of ethics, which I think is very comprehensive. Obviously, it will need to be adapted for particular applications. But I think it's, you know, you will see that fairly soon and there'll be a good opportunity to comment on that. And I think that will be one which will hopefully be common, uh, have a de great degree of commonality uh, across the whole of the cybersecurity profession and landscape. Whilst the profession itself is is relatively young, the, the cyber sector in the UK is actually, you know, getting to be quite mature now. So how does a new body like the UK Cybersecurity Council fit into, you know, an already busy space in terms of government, industry and academia? 
I think that's an excellent question because if you look uh, there, I mean, it's just in the Cybersecurity Alliance itself, you know, there are an awful lot of organisations, all of which have their own touch points with government, for example, and policy formation on their side. And similarly on the government side, while you have DCMS as the body that, as the department which owns the skills agenda, you then do have other players in there. You do have NCSC, obviously, but, you know, Cabinet Office and other government departments have their own say in cybersecurity. And I think what we need to have is a focal point, particularly from the industry side, and I think that's what the, the council will be providing, not only for the bodies that are currently involved in the alliance, but for all the suppliers that are out there, the training organisations, uh, people that recruit, uh, and those that want to use cybersecurity professionals in their practices. So it will be that focal point and that voice, common voice, working outwards, uh, into the profession, but also inwards into government and policy for, uh, makers as well. I suppose we, we should address the, the COVID-19 question. Um, quite clearly, you know, all, all organisations have struggled to maintain business as usual activity in, during this period. And, and it'd be good to get an insight into how that might have affected the project. And, and maybe more broadly, how might the consequences of the pandemic affect the work of the council going forward? You know, with large number of people being displaced from other roles in other sectors and perhaps looking at cyber as a, a growing sector to, to move into? So in terms of the project itself, I think we've been uh, fairly fortunate in that most of the organisations are very tech savvy and we've been able to work remotely very well. So much like everybody else has spent you know, an awful lot of time on whether it's Microsoft Teams or Avaya or Zoom or very other platforms, we spend an awful lot of time doing work online. Uh, the work streams themselves have been working very well online as well. Uh, has it had some impact? Yes, a little bit, uh, as people have been dragged. You know, a lot of work that's been done is being done by volunteers, and they have their own day jobs as well. So that's obviously causing uh, a degree of additional workload for some people as they're having to do their you know, online working for their work, as well as supporting the council. But on the whole, we've been working very well. We're sticking to the deadlines and all the milestones are being hit. So that's great news. Uh, but looking more widely, as the whole of the economy has moved to online, uh, that obviously op opens up an awful lot more threat vectors. Organisations are starting to become more aware of cybersecurity requirements for themselves. So I think that for the profession is great. It's going to generate even more demand. We're already having have a sh significant shortfall of cyber professionals. But that is going to grow. So it's great for people that want to come into the profession. And if you look at what's been happening out there, you know, the number of people that have been looking for courses around cybersecurity, William, there's been a huge take up of people you know, learning how to become pen testers, for example. And there are an awful lot of good material out there. But again, putting that into the, the construct of a framework around how to develop your career and how those certifications, qualifications, educational pathways fit together, I think that all that all augurs well for where we want to get to. But yes, so on project side, yes, we're coping, like much like everybody else, and actually we're, we're on, on track still. In terms of the longer term and the impact of COVID-19, I think that generates more demand for the skills that we're trying to develop anyway in the profession. Absolutely. And one striking thing to me is about the, the council projects always been the number of organisations involved that have come together to de develop it. But, but for it to be truly successful, it, it's going to have to have the, the buy-in of the wider sector, most notably industry, uh, where I sit. How's the project ensuring that industry views are taken on board throughout the formation process? That's a very valid point, and it's something that we have are always very concerned about and we, we think we've got a good process in that. Uh, if you look at the number of organisations that are, are involved in the council project, so taking Tech UK for example, you're a membership organisation, you already represent a wide number of industry players in there. And a lot of the other organisations in the alliance are membership organisations as well. So they have their own uh, wider industry representation. But that's not enough. So as we produce some of the key documents that we're developing for the council. There is a process underpinning that of wider community engagement. We have a separate advisory group that looks at all the deliverables, and that's made up of representatives of a number of large employers, small employers, and academia. And they have themselves have their own network which they can reach out to. And then there is another process of wider industry engagement, and you're going to we're still fairly early in that process of industry engagement, but you will start to see that as some of these products now start to develop. And we're starting to see that in some of those where they will come out to wider consultation through Tech UK and others, where people from industry will have an opportunity to 
review what's been produced and comment on it and we will take those comments on board and the products will develop and evolve. We are acutely conscious that whatever we develop has got to meet the needs of industry and that is the broadest industry. It's not just the big players, it's got to represent SMEs but also people outside the cyber sector as well. What we develop has got to work for manufacturing, it's got to work for health, it's got to work for government, it's got to work for telcos, financial services. It's got, much like cybersecurity is prevalent through everything in society at the moment, all those organisations are going to have to adapt what we produce to fit within their own environment to make sure that it will work. So we have to develop something that's broad but and deliverable as well. Absolutely. And, and in terms of, of timescale, uh, do they stay the same? March 2021, will we, we see the organisation come into being and Will we start seeing over the next few months a, a, a bit more of the progress in the public domain? Yes, you will do. So there are a number of steps that we have to go through. Uh, the council itself as a legal entity doesn't exist yet, so that will be established first, and that's going to be a, a charitable organisation in one form or another. Uh, we, you will see people being recruited, so we will recruit a CEO, we will, we'll recruit trustees, so yeah, some of those milestones will obviously be developed. The council itself, when it's established at end of March, beginning of April 2021, that will be the initial operating capability. It won't be the final council. The council will develop. The council itself will, uh, the plan is for that to have charter status. So we have to go through that process and that obviously takes time as well. And that will be you know, the organisation as a char uh, chartered body. And then you know, how do we work with other organisations to eventually flow down individual charter status for professionals uh, that are out there and that we'll be working with the other organisations so some of them have already chartered like the, the IET, BCS, Chartered Institute for Information Security but there may be others that want to work in this space as well so it's, it's not uh, a fixed point where everything's up and running uh, next year it will be something that will continue to develop over the next few years but the initial council will be then Great. And thank, thanks again for, for joining us, Budgie, and, and look forward to working with you on the, the formation project in the next few months. And, and maybe we can can do this again in, in six months' time and see where we're at. Yeah, and I'm certainly hoping that there'll be a degree of interaction, not only with Tech UK, but also the Tech UK membership. As those products develop, then people have an opportunity to comment on those and help us develop them to fit. Absolutely. Thank, thanks again. The Cyber Exchange has recently been relaunched to help grow the cyber industry. It was originally developed in 2016 as part of a cyber growth partnership, and it now aims to become a crucial part of a cyber ecosystem. As part of its relaunch, DCMS and Tech UK utilised the services of Mason Mentor to provide research on how Cyber Exchange was being used and the types of services users would like to see. I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Mentor, who worked on this project and will now give us insights on what their research suggested and how it has positively affected cyber exchange. Welcome, Sam. Hello. So I, I guess the first question, which we'd really like to ask you, Sam, is who are Mason Mentor? It would be great if you could give a little bit of insight on your company. And, and then secondly, what did Tech UK and DCMS commission you to do? Um, so thanks, thanks for inviting me to come on and talk. Um, I'll just give you a very concise background to Mason Mentor. So we're a team of user researchers, interaction designers, and service designers with a goal to work on problems worth solving. So we kind of have two areas that we look at. 50% of our work tends to be around the research and going wide and understanding problem space. So what, what are the things the service needs to do? Um, what are the behaviors that we're trying to support? What are the needs of the users who are interacting with the service? And then the second part of that is about prototyping ideas. Um, so coming up with concepts for services, taking them back to the people who are going to be using them, interacting with those services, so that by the, by the time you reach the end of a process, you've, you've got something that you've, you're confident, you're, you're designing the right thing, and you know that it's working in the right way um, to support the needs of those user groups. So we, we largely work in public sector. So we've been working with the Cabinet Office on a cyber sharing service. We've been working with DCMS, um, with the Home Office, with Bristol City Council. Um, and we tend to focus on discoveries and alphas, really. Sometimes we go on to work in partnership with tech companies around kind of betas and, and live services. Um, but the majority of our work is kind of around discoveries in terms of what should this service be and what are the needs of, of the users. And then also kind of that kind of alpha, which is prototyping the ideas and, and testing them with those users. The second part of your question was what did Tech UK ask us to do? So 
we responded to a tender that was on the uh, digital marketplace that was talking about a discovery for the cyber exchange. Um, so the cyber exchange had been around for a number of years and the team at DCMS and at, at Tech UK wanted to take a step back before investing more money in the service and work out what were the things it was doing well, um, what could be improved, what were the actual needs of the, the people who were the service was aiming to support. So we went on to, to design a discovery process, which involved a series of research interviews with potential users, um, with existing users, um, and with lapsed users. We ran some quant research um, as well. So we took a survey out to, to users and potential users. Um, and we, we find that that combination of um, qualitative research and quantitative research really gives us confidence in some of the things we're seeing. So the, the, the kind of the depth interviews helps us understand the behavior and you can explore those behaviors in more detail and get kind of concrete evidence around them by, by going out and, and gathering some numbers. So we also used some digital tools. We used Google Analytics to see how the site was being used now. Um, we used Hotjar, which is a, a tracking service, which means you can see the routes people are taking through a site where they're dropping out parts of the pages they're scrolling to, parts they're missing, and so on. So we kind of built up this picture of kind of the way people were interacting with the service and, and how they wanted to use the service. Um, while in parallel, we also ran workshops with the Tech UK team, um, with DCMS, and some government stakeholders to understand actually what are their aspirations for the service, what does it need to do from their perspective. The idea being that at the end of the process, you've got this, this full picture of how the whole thing fits together, the goals of the commissioners, the goals of the users um, and then you can go okay these are the key things the service needs to do um, and, and let's let's test some ideas around this and what did this uh, this research process highlight about how best to use cyber exchange um, what were the, the key findings um the main thing was that, that actually it needed to, to decide what it wanted to do and hone in on it um it, it was doing lots of things but not doing any of them particularly effectively kind of through through spreading effort across the across the, the board. So people were kind of using other services to achieve some of the goals that, that Cyber Exchange was was intended to support. So they weren't really networking through the service. Um, they, they were kind of connecting through groups on LinkedIn um, and, and, and other services. But there was a, there's kind of a real appetite for people to interact as a community of cyber businesses um, and, and interact with government. And they really want to know kind of what's going on that feed of activity that was coming from DCMS and being put through the platform and as a way of reaching those audiences. That was, that was really important. So the, the key things were really actually people wanted to, to build the prominence of their companies with this kind of this database of companies and, and opportunities. And they wanted to kind of hear from government around opportunities and events and, and, and so on. We find when we're working on these kind of community sites that people might think they've got a tech problem and the, the community functionality isn't working well enough and actually what can they do to kind of increase the number of people signing up increase the number of people contributing and so on and quite often you find that actually it's not the technology that's the problem it's a people problem people aren't necessarily confident in the purpose of the, the community and also there's a real need for this kind of community nurturing so whether that's a community it's not so much a moderator but it's kind of an editorial community manager, producing great content, producing useful content, and actually talking to the users um, digitally about this content is the thing that it really takes to kind of lift the community up to being an active space. Is there anything which really surprised you about it, about what was coming out of a research based on what you'd heard previously? I think the key thing was that there were just lots and lots of ideas. So there were so many ideas that the, the stakeholders had around things the service could do. There were ideas that um, kind of some of the users had um, but actually, the thing that became very clear was despite all these ideas, there were the key things that the service needed to do. And to do those well, um, with, with quite a small team, I mean, you need to just focus in and, and say, OK, we're just going to do this one thing. It's kind of like in, in the way that you, you would design a business. You want to do one thing really well. Or well, the same for the cyber exchange. It needed to do those, those kind of one, well, one two, three things effectively to be successful. Great. And so following on from your research, what, what were your recommendations for the service? Uh, how do you suggest um, it could make itself good at these things? And what were these things? So the, the key things were the, the database of companies. So actually enabling companies to be visible um, to investors and to other cyber companies, a good quality stream of content around events and kind of news and that, that type of content that was coming out from DCMS, that there was no other place that people were accessing this stream of information. Those things combined were the, were the core of what we realized the service needs to focus in on. 
there were other ideas around things like job boards, online community, um, and, and various things that were in the mix. And it just became very clear that people were doing these things in other places and that were using up they were using other tools to achieve these goals. So those those key things were the areas that we recommended. That's great, Sam. Really interesting. My final question is, what would you say your favorite thing about the new cyber exchanges? You know, if, if, if you go on the site, what's, what's the one thing you're most happy about compared to where it was previously? It's absolutely the simplicity. It doesn't do much, but what it does do, it does really well. It's like really clear information. It's almost a blog coming from Tech UK and DCMS. Here's useful information for people. And then a really simple database that people don't have to administer themselves that is coming from a feed. That means that it's, it's reliable, interesting, useful information. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me, Sam. That's it for this month's podcast, looking at all things cyber. We'd like to thank our guests, Kat Summer from NCC Group, Snea Dorda and Rebecca Lucas from Rusi, Budgie Dander from the UK Cybersecurity Council Formation Project, and Sam Menta from Mason Menta. We hope you enjoyed this month's podcast and found it informative and entertaining. To learn more and get involved, please visit techuk.org and check out our cyber programme of insights, events and activities. Thanks for listening.